Thank you. Some of you know me well enough to have lots of good blackmail material, I suppose. Um, it's good to see all of you. Uh, good to see many of you again. Good to see some of you sitting in your assigned seats. You're still sitting in the same seats that you were sitting in when I was here in high school. Uh, no, I, I, it's a blessing to see your faithfulness. Uh, I just wanted to take the time to say how much I have appreciated the ministry of, of Fellowship Bible Church and Fellowship Christian Academy, uh, formerly Fellowship Bible School when I started there. Um, you're really blessed, and I don't want you to take that for granted. I've been in the South, I've been out West, I've been in the Midwest, I've been in a lot of churches helping out on mission teams, uh, and, and you're blessed here with a, a string of men who can get up and teach Sunday school, uh, bring a message, serve, lead a ministry, um, a, a, a board of elders that loves you. Uh, I, I travel two and a half hours to fill pulpits because other churches have that kind of need. And here, you know, you want to teach a class, you've got to get in line, which is a blessing. That's a, you know, that's a good problem to have. Uh, I, I hope that you don't take for granted what, what you have, and I hope that you steward uh, the gifts that God has given to this congregation well. Uh, since, since my wife and I moved to Omaha, I, I'm, I'm trained in ministry, but I've, I've taken a job with a real estate title company for a while. We wanted to round out uh, our experience by just becoming parents, which anyone out there who's been a parent knows, that rounds out your ministry experience, right? <laughs> the most challenging ministry is, is right at home. Uh, it's, it's good to see ministry from the side of a layperson, uh, to know what it's like when you're not in full-time paycheck kind of Christian service, uh, what it's like to get the kids ready and bring them out to church at night and things like that. Anyway, so we're there to, to, to round out our Christian experience and our Christian training, so to speak, before going back to seminary. Uh, but since we've been there, uh, really something has become near and dear to my heart, and that is the local congregation. Uh, when, when, when you give yourself to a congregation, uh, to, to love them and, and contribute what you have to, to the health and well-being of that congregation, I, I've really understood what it means to, to settle down into a, into a congregation and love it. Uh, when, you're in, when you're in college, we were in a congregation, which was good, but we were 40 minutes away. We were very much busy with our studies, and there was a lot of ministries on campus, so we didn't quite have that direct experience. Now we do. Uh, and so my attention has been taken up with, okay, what does the life of the congregation uh, look like? What, what should it look like? What does it look like in actuality? Uh, and so uh, the passage that I'm going to be talking about today, the, the God has laid on my heart, is a passage where Jesus explains his concern for the congregation of Christ. And that passage is Matthew 18. So if you'll turn there, what I'd like to do is read through our text today, uh, give you a brief overview, and then we really better pray uh, so we'll pray, and then we'll actually jump into the text. So Matthew chapter 18, Matthew chapter 18, shortly before this in Matthew, Jesus has announced uh, his imminent death to his disciples, the fact that he would die and be raised again, and now you can see Jesus' concern turning towards his people after he's gone. And Matthew chapter 18, in total, deals with what a healthy congregation is going to look like. It deals a lot with offenses. Uh, the first portion of the chapter deals with you not giving offense, not offending the little ones, not giving offense to yourself, to the point where you're willing to pluck out your hand, uh, pluck out your eye, cut off your hand, so as not to give offense. Uh, but then it turns to what happens if someone else offends? How do we handle that? So I'd like to begin in Matthew 18, verse 15, and read to the rest of the chapter. We're going to cover that whole second portion. What if someone else offends? And I know you've been standing a lot already, but because we're reading God's word just out of deference, let's stand to read Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 15. Follow along with me, please. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. If your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, 
that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him, as many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This passage talks about discipline. It talks about forgiveness. From verses 15 through oh, 17, we have steps in dealing with a, with a brother who has sinned. Verses 18 through 20, we have some verses that make us Protestants feel a little uncomfortable sometimes, so we need to deal with those. Verses 21 through 34, we have a pretty straightforward parable about the magnitude of forgiveness. And then in verse 35, again, we have one of those sticky verses that make us uncomfortable and we're tempted to run away from, but we really ought to stare in the face and see, okay, what does this mean? So we need to ask God's help to, to get through this passage, understand what it means, and make sure that we're ready to obey. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we plead for your Holy Spirit to give us an understanding of what this passage says of the questions that this passage attempts to answer. Help us to conform our hearts to what this passage has for us. I ask, Lord, that you would speak through me, and if necessary, despite me, uh, to the congregation. I ask, Lord, that you would help us to, to study this word and, and study to obey it throughout the week and throughout the months to come. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. When you put this passage together, we have a passage on discipline and a passage on forgiveness. And uh, I don't think you can understand the two of them separately. I think you need to understand the two of them together. And what do you get when you put the two of them together? If Jesus is talking about a healthy congregation, a healthy assembly of his people after he's gone, what does a healthy assembly, what does a healthy congregation look like? We're not going to take the time to address the first part of the passage, but we will take the time to address from verse 15 following. And what I think we ought to take away from verses 15 following is that a healthy congregation is quick to discipline, but equally quick to forgive. What does a healthy congregation look like? It's going to be quick to discipline, 
but it's gonna be equally quick to forgive. You can't have a healthy congregation without having both of those. The occasion for discipline comes up in verse 15. If your brother sins against you. So what starts this? Someone has sinned. And what's the first thing you need to do? You need to go and tell him his fault. Why? Why? What is the purpose of going and telling your brother his fault? What does the text say? Look in the text. The proximate reason, the, the, the immediate reason is, if he listens to you, so you want him to listen, all you're looking for right now is a hearing, so that he listens and says, oh, I see, you're right. But then the distant goal, and really the more important one, comes next. You have gained your brother. The purpose of church discipline, the purpose of telling someone a fault, is to gain, or I guess you could say regain, a brother into fellowship. How do I know that that's the purpose? Well, once you've accomplished it, you stop. You know, once you, once you have accomplished your purpose, you end the process that you're working to accomplish that purpose. If he hears you, you have gained a brother. Period. End of flow chart. For those of you business people out there, you know, you have the first fork. You know, brother sins. Go to him. Does he hear? Answer, yes. End process. Okay? But if not, well, then the passage continues because why? We've not, we've not accomplished the purpose yet. He has not heard us yet. Now I'm going to suggest to you that the purpose remains the same throughout this entire process. How do I know that? Because it repeats itself. It repeats the same phrase. Look on down. But if he does not listen, so we've not accomplished the purpose, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them. Okay, so again, what's the purpose? To get him to listen. Let, uh, then tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen, even to the church, then we have a, an unfortunate consequence. But the purpose throughout, every time you take more people along, the purpose is to get him to listen. That's what the text says. And I am I safe saying that if he listens, you've gained a brother at any one of those stages? Okay, I, I think that's a, lot, a, a valid, logical assumption that, that you know, if, if we keep going, we've not accomplished the purpose, but once we've accomplished that first purpose of getting him to listen, we're done. We've gained a brother. So that's the whole purpose that governs this process. It starts with the sin, and the purpose is, okay, we've, we've some, we're somehow out of fellowship here. We need to gain a brother. Now, so the first thing we do is we go alone. The second thing we do is what? We bring two or three people, or one or two people, so that in a, in a total of two or three people, everything should be established. Now, he's quoting from the Old Testament here, an Old Testament principle. And I think the bare principle that we're taking away from that quotation is a witness is stronger when it's established by multiple parties. I think, again, the purpose of bringing people is to show the offender, hey, I'm not just a rogue with a, with a chip on my shoulder trying to tell you about your fault. There are two other people besides me who are noticing, brother, this is a problem. And you're going to establish it with that person that, hey, I'm not alone here noticing this. This is a problem. So now you've got two or three people, what, persuading the person to get a hearing. You need to listen. There is a fault here. You have sinned. We need to get this made right. We're pleading with him, two or three people. Now, that's the purpose that Jesus stated. You're taking two or three people along to establish things with the person, I assume. But and I, I think we're going to be valid here by saying that eventually that establishment of, uh, of a word by two or three witnesses may be needed down the road. Because when two or three people who are not initiating it are witnesses to the goings-on, what's the added benefit? 
they're seeing and hearing what is said, making sure that things are, I guess we could call it kosher, making sure that this discussion is godly, Christ-like. And what if the, the original person does just have a chip on his shoulder? You know, what if it's just a crank who's taking a fault to a brother? Well, you know, you bring two or three people along and maybe they'll make the observation, eh, is this really a sin or is this just your, your crankiness? So there's an added benefit there that two or three people are going to evaluate the facts of the circumstances and say, okay, is this really a sin? So the first benefit is we're going to make it more convincing to the offender. We're going to establish things with him, trying to get him to listen. The second benefit is we make sure that things are done in a decent and orderly manner, done above board, that no hurtful words are said, that tempers are kept cool, that we all remain objective as we discuss this potential problem. Now, what's next? What if the two or three witnesses uh, agree, you know, uh, there is a problem here, this brother is sinning, and he's being stubborn. And he's still, now he's not just not listening, he's refusing to listen. He's got a genuine spiritual problem. He's, he's not just got a sin, he's got a sin for which he will not repent. We go to stage three, which is not the final stage. You know, I, I've typically thought of Matthew 18 as involving three stages, but really it involves four. What is the purpose of telling it to the church? Look in the passage. If he refuses to listen to, verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, then let him be to you as a heathen or a Gentile and a tax collector. Aha. So what is in, what is in view here? Do, do, do the two or three present a foregone conclusion to the church that this person's out? Does the church immediately bring it to a vote? Out. Actually, I think what is in view is, again, we are trying to get this brother to listen. It seems from the passage that there is still a period now where the entire church is aware of the problem, the entire church out of concern for the sinning brother is bringing the problem to him, saying, brother, you have a problem. Please get this made right. We don't like to see you like this. We don't like to see you in sin. Please repent. We love you too much to allow you to go on in sin. And the added pressure, now the entire church is putting pressure on this person saying, you are out of fellowship with us. Please come back to fellowship. And then we reach the fourth and final stage where if this person ref refuses to listen, the word there is even to the church. Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. It's excommunication. That's really what it is. We are, we are putting you out of the communion. What does it mean to be treated as a Gentile and tax collector? At a bare minimum, it means you, you know, to an Israelite, this means you're not in the community of faith. You, you are on the outside of the community of faith. It means that a person who has been put out of the church, you were to regard that person as an unbeliever. It means that you have concluded that this person is in unrepentant sin and, and shows no evidence of being a true believer. That's a sorry conclusion to make, but a necessary conclusion. So, does it sound a little harsh, Gentile and tax collector, to treat a person as a Gentile and a tax collector? Okay, now, <clears throat> you know how the Pharisees treated Gentiles and tax collectors, right? Is that how Jesus wants you to treat Gentiles and tax collectors? Okay, let me ask you this. How did Jesus treat Gentiles and tax collectors? with love, compassion. They were lost. They were lost in their sins, and he had compassion for them. He was, he was willing to evangelize them. What does it mean to treat someone like a Gentile and a tax collector? It means you treat them as an object of evangelism. They are no longer in fellowship with the church. They are now to be treated as an object of evangelism. They need the gospel because apparently they never believed it. They never believed the gospel. 
How do we know that? Well, we see no evidence that they did. They're, they are an unrepentant sin. And we have come to this sorry, sorry conclusion. Wow. That's serious business to, as a church, decide we have to treat you as an unbeliever. We can no longer treat you as one of us. We can no longer treat you as being in communion. You can't enjoy the fellowship of, of passing the bread and juice. This is not for you. You have no part of this. We shy away from doing the hard thing, but, but we have to do it. Do you think that this process is harsh? Look at it. Take a look at it. And tell me if this is harsh. It is as private as possible. If you get to verse 15, your brother sins, you talk to him, and you say, hey, we've got a problem. And he says, you know, you're right. I'm sorry. I'm going to repent to the Lord. I'm going to make it right in any ways I need to. You've gained your brother. The church doesn't even know. No one knows. You've made it as private as possible. It's as gentle as possible. You notice something off in a brother's life? All you have to do is say, hey, you know, I've, I've noticed you're kind of lacking joy in your life lately. Are, are you sure you're trusting God? Well, maybe I'm not. That's all that's needed. Or, you know, I saw you lose your temper the other day. You know, have, have, you, have you made that right? Yeah, I did. Or if you need to take a little bit more force, you do. To convince the person, hey, you know, this is a problem. It's not just me noticing it. Okay, you're right. And that's all the force you need. You, 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 you're not immediately telling the whole church and saying, okay, let's, let's gang up on this person and fix him. No, no, it's very gentle, as much as is needed at a time. And let me ask you to consider the alternatives to not practicing church discipline, okay? We've got Joe, Joe, Joe professing believer sitting in, in the pew there. He professes to believe, be a believer, and we've noticed some sin in his life. What are we going to do about it? Okay, we can either do what Jesus said and actually exercise Matthew 18, or we can gossip. Well, that, that's a great idea, right? Okay. Let's rule that alternative out, right? Okay. We can resent him. You know, Joe Believer is just so inconsiderate and mm, I, I, it drives me nuts to go sit in the same pew as that guy. You never say a thing about it. What a hypocrite that guy is. Mm. Well, that's, that's great for your spiritual walk too, right? Okay. Division in the church. People start taking sides in some sins, right? The next thing you know, you've got a church split. That's a, that's a dandy prospect. What about your reputation in the community? You know, Joe professing Christian, sleeping around with all the ladies. And you, you try to witness to someone. Oh, is that where Joe goes? That's the church that Joe goes to? Yeah. Yeah, Christianity really does something for that church. He's sleeping around with all the ladies. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, that's a great alternative as your church in the name of Christ, is dragged through the mud in the community because you haven't said anything. And lastly, do you really love the offender? How many people across the country sit in pews comfortable until they go to hell? How many people have convinced themselves carnal security that they are truly believers and the gospel means nothing to them. The gospel has done nothing in their life. They think they can live like the devil because they wrote their name in a Bible in 1987. And they're putting their faith in that, writing their name in a Bible. And they're not believers. And no one said a thing about the problems in their life that evidence the fact that they may not be believers. Oh, yeah, you're going to love that person right into hell by not disciplining him. Is that what you want? Do you really love your fellow believers? Do you really love the people in the pew next to you? If you really love them, if you really are concerned for the health of yourself, the health of that offender, and the health of the congregation, and the reputation of Christ, you will, as hard as it is, as hard as it is engage in this process. 
Lastly, let me ask you, okay, we talk about breaking fellowship with people because of sin. Look at Matthew 18. In what verse does the true break in fellowship occur? In what verse does the true break in fellowship occur? Don't answer out loud, but just answer in your own mind. You may be tempted to say in verse 18, when we let this person be to us as a Gentile and a tax collector, but that's not correct. The true break in fellowship happens in verse 15, if your brother sins. Sin is breaking fellowship with God, and by extension, breaking fellowship with his people. The church discipline process is not a process of breaking fellowship. The church discipline process is doing everything you can to restore fellowship. by making it right with the person and bringing your congregation back into a healthy and loving communion with Christ and his people. And if you come to verse 18, perish the thought that you have to, what you are doing is not breaking fellowship. You are simply recognizing the fact that all your efforts of restoring fellowship were to no avail. You did what you could to restore fellowship, and it didn't work. And you just have to recognize the fact that this person isn't in fellowship after all. And this person is now an object of evangelism. A true believer would repent long before, we assume, verse 18, you would hope. This is a painful process, but you know, you, you hear about the guy who, there was some guy who got pinned under a boulder when he was hiking, and he cut off his own limb to get himself freed from that boulder. You think the guy's a masochist? No. His priority is on survival. You know, he's got his priorities straight. <laughs> Sometimes we do nasty, horrible, ugly things that aren't pleasant, but it's because our priorities are in the right place. You know, it's ra Jesus himself used the language of radical amputation in regards to your own offense. You want to keep from offending? Pluck out your own eye if you have to. Cut off your own hand if that's what it takes. I know that this is uncomfortable. Been through it. If it's what it takes, that's where our priorities ought to be. Paul, him, Paul, too, used the language in 1 Corinthians 5, the man sleeping with his mother-in-law or stepmother. Yeah. Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. But that ultimately his spirit could be saved. We are in this for the love of the offender, for the love of the congregation. Now, if you think this is kind of weighty, <laughs> If you think this is kind of weighty, let's go on. Uh, you're thinking, boy, we really have to do some dirty work. Yeah, we're, we're doing God's work on earth. Jesus left his work for his congregation. And we get to this really sticky verse. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now those terms binding and loosing are taken from the rabbinical practice of saying thumbs up and thumbs down to certain practices, approved, disapproved. The idea of making a judgment call on a matter. So the church is to make a judgment call on the matter of church discipline. And we Protestants start shying away from this, thinking, oh, now that sounds awfully, what, awfully Catholic. The idea of the church saying something in God, acting in accordance with what the church has said. Well, first, it will be helpful to know that the Greek tense there is whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Meaning it's not we bind and loose and then God follows in kind. It is we make a decision and it's because God has already bound or loosed it in heaven. But you're thinking to yourself, okay, <clears throat> great. That was a Greek tense 
explanation, but it doesn't really help because it still sounds to me like the church is expressing God's will. Does the church really express God's will? Does the church really express God's will? Okay, so we all start thinking about 500 years ago. Okay, we're celebrating Calvin's 500th, but almost 500 years ago now we had Luther and his 95 theses, and a few years after that, the church decided to excommunicate Luther because they didn't like what he was teaching. I guess they, they, uh, they, they bound. <laughs> they said no. And we think, okay, so a, a particular institution with its headquarters in Rome, excommunicated a man named Martin Luther. Were they speaking for God? Because they bound. You know, we're, you know whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So we, we get to this test case, and we're like, oh boy, what are we going to do with this? Do they have permission from this verse? Okay, let's, let's test it. Let's take a step back. Not too far. Um, let's take a step back and, and, and look at current day people that we would say, uh, are, are speaking for God, binding and loosing. Which way is north? North of here, uh, in the, some diocese in New Hampshire, is a, a man named Gene Robinson. And he is homosexual. And the Episcopal Church in the United States is fine with that. They, they loose uh, his homosexual practice. Okay, on the flip side, in Kansas, there is a pastor who wears the Baptist label, uh, Fred Phelps by name, who goes around picketing funerals and all sorts of things, saying that the judgments, uh, the, any hard thing that happens in America is because of homosexuality. And he, his message is, in a nutshell, his words, not mine, God hates fags. Those are his words. I guess he, he binds. You know, Gene Robinson looses, Fred Phelps binds. Whether you are Catholic or Protestant, you are going to take a step back and say, those people don't speak for us, and they don't speak for God. Okay, so obviously, this verse is not a blank check for any two people or three people who get together and say, we are Christians, we're going to speak on behalf of God. Okay? Anyone who claims it can't, can't have it. And, and both Catholics and Protestants have to agree to that. So we're still left with the question, okay, how do we handle this? Especially in light of the idea of the church speaking infallibly on behalf of God and expressing his will on earth. Okay, let me ask you this. Are there passages in the Bible about the possibility of false teachers? Yes or no? Okay. Are there passages about even the possibility of a false gospel? Okay, are there passages about dealing with false gospels and false teachers? Okay. Are there passages dealing with factions and divisions? Is this one of those passages? No. Okay, this passage assumes a lot. This passage is not looking down the corridor of time to the pa you know, poor, where, where churches will split over heresy, potential heresy, problems like that. It's not looking down to denominations and everything that's arisen. What it is already presuming is that this is a body of believers who sincerely love the Lord, who have sincere, sincerely gathered in concert to exercise the discipline of the congregation of Christ. Okay, it assumes it's a true assembly. It assumes it's a true church. And it assumes that people are very desperately praying and depending on God that they will do things right. But we still come to the fact that this text says that when you have a congregation gathered like that, you will be doing God's work. I can't make it say anything less than that, that a true congregation will express God's will in the matter of discipline. Is that weighty on your shoulders? Does that make you feel like you need some help? Like you desperately need the Lord 
to help you as you prayerfully consider matters like that? Well, good, it ought to. <laughs> Look in the next verse. You're going to get some help. Again, I say to you, if two or three, uh, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. What are we asking for? Help! <laughs> Lord, this is a sticky situation. We need to pray that we're going to do the right thing. But look, you've got a congregation, an entire congregation, earnestly seeking the Lord in this matter. The believers get together because they, need, they mean business. The health of their congregation is important to them, and they gather, and they pray, and they ask for help. And what does this verse tell you? You're going to get it. You will have help. Not only that, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Jesus' body is in heaven. But is he here? Is he here? He is here. And he has promised you his presence. Do you think you love this congregation more than he does? He died for this congregation. You can't love this congregation more than he does. And when he promises you that he, when he will be with you to do the hard thing, you think he's going to be absent? Or do you think he's going to be with you, helping you to do the right thing, the hard thing? Whose responsibility is church discipline? Mine. You have to say for yourself, mine. We have to say for ourselves, ours. Jesus could have had a very uh, truncated pyramid for the organizational structure of his church. Namely, Jesus does everything. He very deliberately chose not he very deliberately gave the ministry of the word and of the Lord's table to you. He didn't give it to you and say, go play. He gave it to you and said, I'm going to help you. He gave you everything you needed, and it would take me a while to Go through all the passages of what he's given you, the gifts of the Spirit, the gifts of your leaders, all things that pertain to life and godliness. He's given you everything you need. Okay. The sermon gets faster from here. But your responsibility is church discipline of restoring brothers who have sinned and have fallen out of fellowship by what they've done. Talk about the blessing of that in just a moment. But a healthy congregation is going to be quick to get on the ball with discipline, quick to get on the ball with talking to believers. And now you're going to exercise wisdom, right, in how to do that? Okay? You exercise some mercy and wisdom, obviously. You know, if a person's already repentant, you don't need to beat on him. I'm gonna, uh, that, that's a matter for another message, but just the importance of doing it. I'm going to leave you with that. The importance of actually doing it. The, 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 ex, the precise how, depending on the kind of sin and the circumstance, is going to take some wisdom. I'm going to trust your leaders to instruct you in that over time as to how to use, exercise discernment. But the importance, a healthy church is going to exercise discipline because they know it's in priority. But... But, 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 a healthy church is also going to be quick to, uh, to, uh, to exercise forgiveness. And we come to uh, Peter, who uh, I, I guess, you know, he's listening and he's thinking to himself, boy, that's an awful lot of, what, that's an awful lot of harshness? No, he's thinking that's a lot of, an awful lot of restoration. 
we're really restoring these brothers here. We're working really hard. When is, when is enough enough? And so Peter says, you know, Lord, when's enough enough? Till, till seven times? Thinking, you know, that's, that's enough. And Jesus basically turns to Peter and says, Peter, stop counting. <laughs> You're not supposed to count with forgiveness, okay? Justice counts. You know, you get a guy in courtroom. He's up for so many counts of this, so many counts of that, and he's got so many years of sentencing, and he can serve these concurrently, blah, blah, blah. That's justice. That's counting. There's no math for mercy. You know, we forgive 70 times 7. It's a, it's a big number. That's what we'll take that, okay? It's a big number. You forgive a lot. Unlimited forgiveness. Why? Because God's forgiveness is unlimited. Forgiveness is so unlimited that, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be likened unto and then we've got a pretty straightforward story. This story talks about a debt. The debt involves something like 150,000 years of labor worth of work to pay back the debt. You know, that's an absurd figure. Okay? If, if this were a real-life story, it would be absurd. But it is not a real-life story. It's an illustrative story. But let me suggest to you this. 150,000 years worth of debt is too small a number to compare to the magnitude of God's forgiveness. You compare this sto story to real life, it's absurd. It's absurdly big. You compare this story to what God's forgiven you of, it's absurdly small because of the magnitude of God's forgiveness. So you've got this guy who's been forgiven a great debt, just as God has forgiven you a great debt your sin. And then this guy goes out and will not forgive a piddly debt, just as sometimes we are tempted not to forgive the piddly debts that our brothers and sisters rack up on our account or on our, on our charge list. And we as readers or listeners to this story are tempted to be, uh, we're not tempted to, we are very naturally like the bystanders in this story. The bystanders are aghast. They see the fact that this man has been forgiven so much and he goes out and he refuses to forgive. And they're aghast and they report it. And we're aghast too. What is your reaction to a man who has been forgiven so much and then refuses to forgive? In the modern speak, something along the lines of, what is wrong with you? What is wrong with you that you will not forgive? You've been forgiven so much. Didn't that change you? Okay. You got that feeling of distress and aghastness at this man who refuses to forgive? Good. Good. Bring that to the, tep to the tough verse, verse 35. We've just said that the, the master threw that unforgiving man to the jailers until he should pay back all his debt. And Jesus says very seriously, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Okay, are you going to explain that verse away, or are you going to explain it? Are you going to run to a very true doctrine called free grace, which is true, to shield yourself from this verse, which, if you're not measuring up to this verse, may indicate that you have never actually experienced free grace? Because we want to back away from this verse and say, oh, you know, obviously salvation is not based on works and God's not looking at, at what I do to weigh whether or not I'm saved. And, you know, if I refuse to forgive someone, well, you know, grace is free. This verse isn't talking about free grace here. I affirm wholeheartedly that we are saved by grace. It's a gift of God, not works. I can't boast. But this verse says that God doesn't forgive the unforgiving. And I think 
we have to bring that understanding of what is wrong with you to interpret this verse. Because I think it's a natural statement to say that a believer who has experienced the free grace of God will naturally be a forgiving person. And if someone is not naturally a forgiving person and is prone to holding a grudge and harboring that, we are legitimate to ask that person, what is wrong with you? Where is the disconnect? What happened between God's grace and you? Evidently, nothing. It didn't change you. Because you are still thinking about your piddly sense of justice. If you want to operate this world on justice, you will go to hell. Because all that you deserve is hell. God's mercy is free. And it transforms us to be merciful people. And it's unthinkable that someone who understands forgiveness and has been forgiven would be a grudge-holding, unforgiving, piddly justice kind of person. This is where the rubber meets the road. I don't want to scare you as if, okay, you know, I... I go out and dent your car and, and you get a little in a huff about that and you go to bed mad and you're going to hell because you, you, you're a little bit mad about my denting your car, okay? Let's not bring this verse down to answer questions that it's not meant to answer. But what this verse is saying is that we expect forgiven people to forgive. Your life should be a pattern of mercy where you are quick to forgive. So what do we get from this whole passage taken together? We've said that a healthy congregation is quick to discipline and it's quick to forgive. Who are we? We are sinners saved by grace. We are the bride of Christ for whom he died. We are his precious possession. We are the object of his affections. We are his laborers. He's committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. We've been reconciled to God, and we have the awesome privilege of reconciling ourselves to each other, of reconciling the world to God by bringing them the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified for us. A healthy church is quick to discipline and quick to forgive. And when your brother sins against you and you go and you tell him his fault and he repents, you're quick to discipline, you're quick to forgive. And that forgiveness is not just a, ah, you know, it was nothing kind of forgiveness. It's a, yeah, that was sin, but it's a forgiven sin. And when a brother comes to you and confesses his fault and you say, brother, your sins are forgiven you, that's not a magic happening that might happen in a shrouded confessional between a person and a priest. No. You're just retelling the gospel. Does God say that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But when your brother or sister comes to you and says, I've sinned, I'm sorry, forgive me, you can say, I forgive you. Your sins are forgiven you in Christ. And then you come to communion. You all show up empty-handed 
and someone puts in our hand a piece of bread, a cup of juice. That happens once a month, but 31 days a month. You should be ministering the body and blood of Christ to one another through the word and spirit of God as you preach the gospel and forgive and you enjoy the blessings of forgiveness and reconciliation. Do you love this congregation? Okay, I'll make it a little harder. Do you love the congregants? Okay, I love humanity. It's people I have trouble with. Okay, um, do you love this congregation? Do you love the person sitting next to you, behind you, in front of you? Do you love the health of Fellowship Bible Church and the spiritual health of every last individual. What are you going to do? In concern for their spiritual life, you will be quick to bring up problems, but you're going to be quick and happy to forgive. Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you that when you have died for a person, you have promised to send all good things behind the cross. That the cross is just the first that we see of your love, but by no means the last. We thank you, Lord, for raising up uh, leaders, faithful saints, faithful elderly people who have been faithful to this congregation for longer than I've been alive. We thank you, Lord, that your church does not rise and fall on us, but on your faithfulness to us. And thank you, Lord, that you promise that the gates of hell won't prevail. Lord, we thank you that you can bury your workmen and continue your work. I ask, Lord, with not really understanding what I'm asking, but I ask, Lord, that for years to come, when all of us here are uh, in glory, if you've tarried, that this congregation will still be faithful to the word. I ask, Lord, though, that you would hammer home to our hearts the vital role that we play under the Spirit of God in keeping this congregation faithful to the word for years and years to come so that the generations to come can look back and thank you for the faithfulness of this generation. And I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.